Last week, we had talked about this idea of Kairos moments. And we kind of went back to school, right? Brought out the pen and was drawing all over it and acting like a school teacher. This week, we're going to review this. Because here's my hope. My hope during the season of Lent is that you would identify your Kairos moments. Let's talk about what a Kairos moment is. A Kairos moment is a divine moment when God comes in and speaks directly to you. You see, Jesus said two things. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is near and believe. You see, oftentimes when we think about the word repent, we think of a negative sorrow, guilt, shame. But actually what repentance is, even though we may feel those things with repentance, Repentance is simply turning from a pattern of unbelief and turning to belief in what is true of God and now you. You see, when you see who God is, the reality and the truth of God, it actually redefines who you are. You begin to see yourself in a whole different light. And when you see God for who He is in light of you, it allows you to turn from a pattern of unbelief to a pattern of belief of who God is. And now, what is true of you as a child of God? But you see, it doesn't just stop there. It's not just about repentance and identifying who He is. It's about belief. And we had talked about this idea of belief. Oftentimes we think about belief as as head knowledge. Yeah, I get it. That's kind of like what we think about belief, right? I get it. It's that aha moment. But you see, whenever Jesus used the word belief or believe, it wasn't about that, just that, yeah, I get it. It was changing the pattern of how you act. Belief is simply our response as we act out our new restored beliefs. You see, I love this definition because it takes this idea of of guilt and shame and this whole idea of, of they're better than I am and allows me to come into a place of truly encountering the living God so that I can be aware and attuned to when God wants to step in and speak to me very, very clearly. You see, that's what a Kairos moment. A Kairos moment is any given day when you have an epiphany, an enlightenment, that aha, that God is stepping and speaking into your life that causes you to realize who He is and who you are in light of Him. And so what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks is we're going to continue this journey because my hope, my passion as a minister of the gospel is to help you begin to understand what are these moments in your life when God is speaking in in the mundane to reveal Himself and make Himself known. Because if He makes Himself known and you believe in Him, what are you going to do? You're going to change how you live. You're going to live in this place that supernaturally transcends all your understanding. And you're actually going to change the way that you believe about yourself. 
Because what you believe about God changes who and how you believe about you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to follow the, the passages of Lent that are found in the common lectionary. Anyone know what the common lectionary is? Anyone know what the common lectionary is? Okay. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Anyone? Anyone come up from a Catholic background? Okay. No, seriously. Anyone come from a Catholic background? Raise your hands. Catholic backgrounds. What about Lutherans? Any Lutherans? Anyone grew up Lutheran? Presbyterian. Let's keep going down the line. Methodists. All right. What else? All of them, Orthodox. All these churches right now across the globe are going through the common lectionary. And so the passages that we are going to be looking at this morning are the same passages that all of these churches all throughout the world are going through that are going to keep us on pace. That leads us not just to the cross, but more importantly, to what? The resurrection. The resurrection. You see, here's the problem with Kairos moments. It's not that you identify these moments when God speaks to you. It's actually how do you respond. You see, you can have all these moments in your life where you see God speaking on a regular basis where you're just like, wow, you are God. But the bigger question is, is how do you respond? Because that's what Jesus is always trying to do when he steps into your life. It's not that he would make himself known. It's that as he makes himself known, you would believe. And in your belief, you would follow. Does that make sense? Okay, turn with me to John chapter 3. Very famous passage. We've all have, if we haven't read it, we have heard it. We've seen it at football games. We've, we've seen it everywhere in the world. But the neat thing is, I think oftentimes we don't know the true story behind John 3.16. So let's start with John 3.1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus and he said, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Listen to the words. We all know, all of the leaders, everyone knows that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can re reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Stop here. Here's what's happened. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry. How do we know this? Because the book of John is longer than three chapters. It's a lot longer. Jesus has just come into the world. He was born. He's 30 years old. He begins his ministry. People are following him. People are seeing him. And they're mainly following him and seeing him for two reasons. 
his miraculous signs, and this new teaching. It's not a new teaching that's separate from, from the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. It's teaching that has life to it. It's something that they can resonate with. It's something that when Jesus says the same things that the Pharisees had said about the Old Testament, but was new, was fresh, was applicable, was something they could attach themselves to. I mean, think about it. How many times have you gone to church and you've heard 10 different messages that sit from, from the same passages? And you're thinking like, that was the same, that was the same, and that was the same. But what about that one? That was a little bit different. And that's what happened with Jesus, that when Jesus taught, even the Old Testament, ears perked up. And people began listening because he just did not teach, but he modeled his teaching with the way that he lived and the miraculous signs. And so Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was one of 70 Sanhedrins. One of the main leaders that made sure that all of the religious Jewish laws were enforced. So he was high, high up there in, in Judaism. And Nicodemus had watched Jesus, had heard Jesus, had, had heard all the Pharisees and Sadducees talking about who this guy was. And he admits, he says, we all know you're from God. But there was something more that Nicodemus was going to look for. He knew that Jesus was, was this sent prophet by God, but there was this hope and ambition that he wasn't just another prophet, but actually that he was the Messiah. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is this. He hears our questions, but he sees our hearts. Do you know every time we pray, every time we become, come before God and we ask certain requests, he hears our words, but more importantly, he sees the transparency of our hearts. And as he heard Nicodemus ask these questions and, and want to come to see who he is, he, he threw Nicodemus a curveball because that's what Jesus always did. And whenever you study all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus always threw the religious leaders a curveball because he knew that they should have been the ones who would first and most clearly identify Jesus' identity. Because everything that Jesus was doing and preparing to do was spelled out in the Old Testament. Everything. Everything that they were taught as young boys preparing to go on from the next level of school to the next level of school, Jesus was manifesting. And that's why there was this excitement that could this be him? And so Jesus throws a curveball to him because what he should have said, Nicodemus, is you are the one. But this shows the, the condition of humanity's frailties. And Jesus poses a question and he says, or not a question, a statement, he says, you must be born again. Now stop for a moment. Some of you are cringing right now. What does that mean? Born again? Aren't those those freaky people that live next door to me? Right? Come on. Right? Some of you are those freaky people that live next door to your neighbors. All right? Amen. Amen. 
I got a freaky one next to me in my office. Jeremy. Jeremy. <laughs> but there's this idea of, of what does he mean by born again? And here, let me, this is, this is the beauty of the Nicodemus story that we always, we never hear. Not that I found anything new, but we never dive into the reality of what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus because we think about born againers as what? Freaks? The freaks come out at night. Or, go to, or the freaks come out on Sundays more like, right? The freaks come out on Sundays. Hey, who's that guy in the suit and Dunkin' Donuts on Sunday morning? It must be that born againer. But that's this idea. Born again, when someone says they're born again, it means one of two things. They are radically in love with Jesus or they're crazy right-wingers, right? I mean, psychotic. They are against everything that's going on on TV right now. They are against everything that is happening in this world. So when people think this word of uh, born-againers, that is their thoughts. They either picture themselves as like, wow, and in, in all fairness, I'm born again, but I'm not like them. Amen? I'm not like them. They would probably kick me out of their tribe. You see, when people say they're born again, they either say like, I've had this rebirth encounter where God has dealt with me, my past, and I'm a new person. Or, there are these crazy fundamentalists that are so against everything that they've shut off any conversations with their neighbors. You see, the phrase born again is not supposed to be a negative. It's supposed to be a positive. But here's, let's learn something new about Nicodemus. What do we know about Nicodemus and this whole word born again? Does anyone know? You see, we think this is just kind of a catchphrase that someone put in like 1945. Like, let's just add this into the Bible. Actually, Nicodemus understood something similar to this phrase born again. Because whenever someone who was not brought up Jewish, from Jewish descent, wanted to join a Jewish community, wanted to participate within the synagogue and the temple and be identified as Jewish, they went through their own born-again process. Anyone know this? They go through a whole process, yes, spoken from, yes, we know why you know. And in that, in a good way, and in that, they would go to the temple and they would actually be immersed in water. They would go through a, a public baptism identifying that they are no longer a Gentile, but now they are Jewish. And so Jewish people would go through what Nicodemus would identify as a born-again moment for the only purpose to be welcomed into the community. Anyone ever know that? Does that change the whole idea of the Nicodemus story? Besides you, you know. <laughs> that changes the whole idea of the Nicodemus story. Because we think that Jesus was getting all freaky with Nicodemus and not like trying to confuse him and, and mess with his head. That was never the case. You see, Nicodemus knew about the prophecies. That the Spirit of God was going to come into people and change the hearts and the mind of the young and the old. And the young men would dream dreams and have visions. All these prophecies from Malachi 
all of these different things, but there was something that kept Nicodemus from seeing who Jesus was. And so Nicodemus asked the question, how are these things possible? Verse 9. Now listen to what Jesus says in verse 10. You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? There's a change in language. There was a welcoming and an invitation to now Jesus is actually, as you study the language, he's beginning to become frustrated with Nicodemus. And you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but He, the Son of Man, has come down from heaven and ha- And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. You see, Jesus gets frustrated with Nicodemus as we know that he had gotten frustrated with all the Pharisees. Because the words that Jesus would use were never meant to confuse these leaders. He was always saying little riddles to help them have more clarity. And it's in this moment that Jesus begins to get frustrated with Nicodemus because he's thinking, don't you get it? You know about this spiritual birth, not just a physical birth, but there's also a spiritual birth that is given to everyone that believes. A birth that begins by the Spirit of God. But you see, there's a difference between not understanding and being ignorant. Right? I mean, think back. Think back to your math class when you had to like sit out a whole year of math in college and then go back in. And there was times when you went to math class. I remember my first math class in college. And I totally forgot everything. I didn't know anything about algebra, probably because I slept through it all in high school and had to relearn it. But I wasn't being ignorant. I truly didn't get it because I never really learned it. But then there's also moments of our ignorance that we don't want to believe certain things. Because if we believe certain things, it's actually going to change the course of how we see things moving forward. Correct? There's certain things about people that we truly don't want to believe. Because it's going to change the way that we see them and view them. Maybe even love them. Right? If, we, if someone says, well, they, I don't want anyone to know the true me. Because if they did. And Jesus confronts Nicodemus with his ignorance. With his ignorance. And he gives the example that when Moses lifted up the staff. The staff had what? What was the staff of? A snake. And all the people were sick and they looked at that that staff. What happened? They were healed. Just as he is lifted up amongst the people then. 
that they would have spiritual healing, spiritual life. And everything Jesus had done was to bring spiritual life. The healings, the deliverance, the signs, the wonders were not just to wow people. They weren't even to wow people. They were supposed to be the gateway, the step to spiritual healing. Let's continue in this passage. It says, For God so loved the world, so much, that He gave His one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, but anyone who does not believe in Him already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. But people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. You see, we oftentimes think of this passage, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We think of that as the words of Jesus, right? We think of that, well, that was what Jesus said. Jesus never said that, first and foremost. That was a summary from the author of what Jesus had spoken to Nicodemus. As the author told of this encounter, he gives a summary, a conclusion, an application to what Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. You see, here's what we have to realize, especially in a world that looks at Christianity as, as the enemy. I mean, if we're really serious, people struggle with Christianity. People really struggle. And I know that because sometimes you are embarrassed to be identified as a Christian. We all are. We're thinking, if, if I say I'm a Christian, what are they going to think? What are all the negative connotations that are going to rush through their head? It's like, dude, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. I follow Jesus. Because when they think of the word Christian, they think of negative, against. But here's what Jesus was saying. This is what the author was saying about Jesus. Jesus never came to condemn the world. The world was already condemned by original sin. You see, Jesus did not come to, to smack people in the face and say, you see how stupid you are? You see how wrong you are? You see how naughty you are? How bad you are? How wretched you are? How evil you are? The only people he ever identified as evil were who? The religious leaders. Those were the only people. Woman at the well. The demonized person. The tax collectors. He never identified them as evil. Because Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. And in that life was the hope of mankind. But the author also says that that people don't want to look at the reality of who Jesus is because their hearts are evil. 
Oftentimes when we think about this whole idea of evil, we think about wickedness and, and crazy, crazy lifestyle, wild living, stealing, robbing, hurting others. But was that Nicodemus? Did Nicodemus do anything in our definition as evil to Jesus? You see, we also have to remember that the most evil part of humanity is our pride. Our pride is the most evil component of our soul because our pride is that which drives us to live a self-centered way of life. And in our self-centeredness, doors and avenues are open to choose to live in manners that we believe are right in our own eyes. You see, that's the thing about this whole Nicodemus story. It wasn't like he was like, you know, child trafficking, drug addict, you know, stealing from Wall Street. Nicodemus was struck with the fear of not being right. He was struck with the fear of of all these traditions that he was living in now are being complicated with the realities of what Jesus is saying. And all of a sudden, we have this guy who was looking for this idea of a kairos moment. He is walking through life and all of a sudden, Jesus steps in and he sees the reality of who he is. But the question is, is he willing to respond? To believe? To step out in faith? You see, the thing about Kairos moments is not that you have them. It's how you respond. I have so many people that will show up and talk to me and say, man, I had these God moments, these God moments, these God moments. God's been speaking to me and all this stuff. Matter of fact, last night I was counseling someone and they said, I feel like God is haunting me. I feel like God won't leave me alone. And I said, the difference is, how are you responding? And they said, I know he loves me and I know this, but, but, but I have so much junk in my life. I said, you actually are struggling with you, not with God. And I said, so-and-so, the problem is not that God is stepping into your life, but how are you responding to the nudges, the people that God is placing before you? You see, God always wants to have all these divine encounters. He had it all throughout Scripture, so why wouldn't he have them today? He wants to have these divine encounters with us that we would turn from a pattern of our unbelief of who He is to turning to a belief in what is true of Him and now myself. You see, I love that I'm born again. Because I don't call myself conservative. Because when you say you're conservative, it's about what you're against. Ooh. I say I follow Jesus and I live a progressively holy life. Meaning that I walk with Jesus and the more I walk with him, the more I want to go into this dark world to reveal him. 
The more I know His love, truth, and compassion, the more I want to go meet the people that are most broken, like I was. And so this whole idea of of who we are being born again, I'm born again, praise God, because I was a wreck. I had a new birth that I am no longer the Rob Parker that I used to be. I was evil. Not just my pride, but my temperament and my behavior. You see, here was this moment for for Nicodemus, and I'm going to wrap it up right now. There was this kairos moment for him. And he had to come to a place of how he was going to respond. You see, he knew about the prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling. He knew about his teachings because they were so radically right that he had to go speak with him. He knew that his miracles were of God. You see, we can be mad at the church and we can be mad at the world and we can be mad at one another. But we need to clarify who is it that Jesus really is. God wants to speak into your life during this season of Lent so that you begin to be aware of these Kairos moments. So that you would know Him, repent, and make Him known by your belief. So here's my challenge. What are you doing with these moments when God is speaking to you? At work, at home, in conversations. Are you just recognizing them? Or are you responding to them? We're going to go into a time of communion right now. And we are going to do communion as we always do with a little, little change. We want our communion to be a continued time of worship. And oftentimes, as we talked about communion, it can be a little choppy. We, we sing, we stop, we sing, we stop. So here's what we're going to do this morning is, in this new time of worship, when you come up for the, for the bread and the cup, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it, you'll go back to your seat, and when you're ready, eat on your own. We're going to have our regular song of, of communion, but then we're going to go right into our song of responding. And that's how we will begin to end our services. We want to make sure that after we go into a time of the Word, that our communion is not just a tradition we participate in, but an act of worship. And here's my challenge. Ask yourself, who is Jesus to me? Have I allowed Him to bring new spiritual birth? Or am I too stuck on old patterns and thoughts that I don't want to engage? And if you're here and you're saying for the first time that I want to begin this spiritual walk, we want to invite you to communion. Communion is for all those who follow the way of Jesus. 
And if you follow the ways of Jesus, we invite you to come for communion. If you're here and saying, you know what? I need this new spiritual birth. I need something new. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to recognize it, but I need something new. We invite you. Because I believe that every time we pick up the bread and we dip the cup, that God wants to do something supernatural in our souls. Something supernatural within us. If you're here and you're just kind of here and you're just watching and trying to figure this out, we want to invite you to stay where you're at. Don't feel pressure. Don't feel that you have to come up. Just stay and let the words of what is spoken, whether through song or message, to wash over you.